0: Well, I already told you to go to Genesis 29, so I have no idea how to start. Um, It's really good to see you all this morning. Thank you so much for being here. So, as Joel said, Genesis 29. We're going to be reading starting in verse 31. And we're going to just be picking up where we left off in our series on Genesis. So, if we remember last week... Joel uh, looked at the previous section where we saw how Jacob is tricked into marrying two sisters, Leah and Rachel. And we saw about how his future father-in-law, Laban, switched out Rachel for Leah on the wedding night and then gave Rachel to him to be his wife as well in exchange for him to work for Laban another seven years. And the passives last week concluded with this verse. So, Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. This does not sound like the setup for a happy marriage, let alone happy marriages. This whole situation is an absolute disaster, and the turmoil just continues as we look at the next section. So let's read together what happens next, starting in verse 31 and continuing through Genesis 30, verse 24. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction... For now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel and he said, Am I in the place of God? "'who was withheld from you the fruit of the womb? "'Then she said, "'Here is my servant Bilhah. "'Go in to her so that she may give birth on my behalf, "'that even I may have children through her.' "'So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, "'and Jacob went in to her. "'And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. "'Then Rachel said, "'God has judged me "'and has also heard my voice and given me a son.' Therefore, she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, Good fortune has come, so she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please, give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came in from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah And she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. Would you pray with me? Father, this story that we have before us this morning is a very strange story to us. It's a strange story to our culture. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see that this is a story about weak people for weak people. That we would understand what you are trying to show us in this story. And that we would learn how to trust in you and worship you through it, I pray. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Lately, during mealtime, I've been playing Would You Rather with the kids. Um, A lot of times, this has involved superhero stuff like, would you rather be the strongest or run the fastest? Would you rather fly or be able to turn invisible? Sometimes it gets a little more philosophical. Would you rather have no sense of smell or no sense of taste? Would you rather have pizza for every meal or never have pizza again? I know that there are some people in this room that are at least tempted to pick pizza every day. So the passage before us lays out a would you rather as well. But this would you rather is much darker. Would you rather be beautiful and loved by your husband but unable to have children? Or would you rather have a house full of children, but a husband who loves someone else and not you? I think we would all agree that we wouldn't want to pick either option. I mean, if we had to choose, we might see one as more preferable than the other. But the truth is, Leah and Rachel didn't really have a choice at all. They were stuck in circumstances that they didn't want. And this passage here is all about how they sought to find significance in the midst of a situation they didn't desire. Now, at first glance, we may think that these circumstances are so outlandish that they can't possibly relate to us. But my hope for us is that as we explore this story, we will see ourselves and our own struggles in it. Because in reality, we are just like these women. All of us are seeking significance in this world and trying to navigate circumstances that are less than ideal. These circumstances challenge our view of ourselves, our view of others, and our view of God. But my hope for us is that in studying this passage, we see this. God's love for us can satisfy our search for significance. Let me say that again. God's love for us can satisfy our search for significance. So, how does this passage show us that we can find significance in God's love for us? Well, I believe it shows us this in four different ways. First, by telling us to dismantle the if only idol. Second, to disarm the comparison trap. Third, to detox from natural remedies. And fourth, To devote yourself to the God who cares. So let's dive in with the first part. Dismantle the if only idol. The first section of this passage is all about Leah and the birth of her first four sons. And we see right from the start that Leah is a rejected woman. Do you remember what it said in verse 30? It said, so Jacob went into Rachel also and he loved Rachel more than Leah. Now, there is a lot that we don't know about this situation. How much did Leah participate in the deception? Did she have any choice in the matter? Did she know of Jacob's feelings for Rachel? Did she even know that Rachel would also marry Jacob afterward? We really don't have any answers to these questions, but what we we do know is the result. Jacob loves Rachel, not Leah. Leah is rejected, but Leah is not totally rejected. Though unnoticed by her husband, she is seen by God. Look at verse 31 again. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. What's clear from the situation is that God responds to Leah's rejection by opening her womb and blessing her with children. It's a compassionate gift from God. And though Leah rightly perceives it to be a gift, we see right away that she's hoping for it to be more than a gift. She's hoping it's a solution to her problem, a means by which she gets what she really wants, Jacob's love. And we see this in the names Of her four sons. One of the keys to understanding what's going on in this passage is looking at how the names of the children reveal what Leah and Rachel are hoping for, how they're interpreting their circumstances, and how they're perceiving God in the midst of them. So in this case, the names of the first three children indicate that Leah is hoping to win her husband's love through bearing him children. We see this clearly in how she names her firstborn Reuben, saying, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. It unfortunately becomes very clear through the naming of her subsequent children that this plan doesn't work and that her hope of Jacob ever loving her is diminishing. We see the second son's name is Simeon because the Lord has heard that I am hated. Second son, she's still not loved and he has given me this son also. The third son's name is Levi, saying, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. It's hard not to read these names and hear the bargaining going on for Leah. With the first, she's hoping that Jacob will love her, but by the time she gets to the third, she'll settle for him just being attached to her. The fourth and final son, in a sense, Represent that she's given up on ever hoping for Jacob's love. She names him Judah, saying, This time I will praise the Lord. Leah knows that God is the one who gave her children. She knows that they are a gift from him, but rather than receiving the gift, she seems to be preoccupied with using the gift to get what she is ultimately desiring. It's not until Judah is born that she sees the gift and simply thanks God for it. Now, it's worth saying here that what Leah is desiring is a good thing. But we can clearly see how much she's missing the blessing of what she has because of how focused she is on what she doesn't have. It's as if she's saying, if only Jacob loved me, then everything would be okay. When we consider these things it's worth asking the question what is your if only what is the one thing that you feel like you are lacking that you often think would complete you or or make your life much better than it is if only i could make more money then i wouldn't have to worry all the time if only my kids would sleep then i could give them more focused attention If only my spouse would appreciate what I'm doing for them, then I could be more romantic. If only I could find my soulmate, then my life would feel happy. If only I could lose weight, then I would feel beautiful. What we need to see here is that this kind of thinking robs us of joy and thankfulness for what we have. And it brings with it the temptation to make a good thing the ultimate thing. The thing that gives our life meaning and joy. So, how do we get out of this? How do we dismantle the if only idol in our lives? Well, we get a hint of it through looking at verse 35. It says, And Leah conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. This time I will praise the Lord. Leah turns her heart from focusing on what she is lacking to focusing on how God has blessed her. And this seems to free her not only to be thankful, but to praise God even in the midst of her circumstances. Friends, when the temptation to focus on what we are lacking creeps in, let us fight by remembering what we've been given let us cultivate a heart of thankfulness to God and praise him for his good t- goodness to us, even in the midst of our needs. Now, as we turn to this next se- section, the focal point shifts from Leah to Rachel. And the next section is going to warn us to disarm the comparison trap. Compared to Leah, Rachel seems to have everything Physical beauty, a fairy tale love story, a husband who loves her. But she lacks one thing. And we see in this next section that that one thing becomes all that matters. Let's read chapter 30, verse 1 together. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Now, it's no small thing here that Rachel is barren. In her culture, to be unable to have children would have been viewed as a judgment or even a curse upon her. So this would have been a serious struggle. And from the outset, we get a dark picture of how Rachel is dealing with this struggle. Her barrenness leads her to envy her sister. And this envy poisons her view of everything. It poisons her view of what she has. Despite what she has been given, she says to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Essentially, she's saying, if, if I don't have this one thing, then my life is not worth living. And it poisons her relationship with her sister. Instead of rejoicing in the blessing that Leah has received of children, she can't even be happy for her sister. It poisons her relationship with Jacob. He's given her his love But that doesn't matter to her. What matters is what he hasn't given her, children. And she seems to blame him for it. And it poisons her relationship with her maidservant, Bilhah. In Rachel's envy, she repeats the sin of Sarah by forcing her maidservant into surrogate motherhood through being given to Jacob as a secondary wife, a concubine. Before we move on, it's worth pausing and reflecting for a minute on just how destructive the sin of envy is. Envy creates strife, competition, and conflict. When we act out of envy, we see others around us as people to be used or obstacles to be conquered to reach our goals. We treat others as less than human. We ourselves act less than human. Consider the words of James with me in the New Testament. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Coveting, leading to conflict. In this passage, we see clearly from the names of Rachel's surrogate children that she views things here as an outright competition against her sister Leah. She names her first son, Dan, saying, God has judged me. That is to say, God has judged in my favor, and he has also heard my voice and given me a son. The name of the second son is Naphtali, saying, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. And her actions here have very serious consequences, because now Leah enters into the fray. She gives her maidservant, Zilpah, to Jacob as a surrogate mother, and now we have an all-out baby war on our hands. Now, Rachel may have instigated this, but Leah is by no means innocent of fault. The names of her children, uh, the children born to Leah through Zilpah, indicate that she is also now competing with Rachel, particularly the name of the second surrogate son. Look at verse 13 again. And Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. This name here indicates an awareness of how other people will view Leah's situation. And that their perception of her being blessed because of how many kids she has is the cause for her rejoicing. She's taking pride in her own reputation. Now, it's easy for us to normalize or minimize comparing ourselves to others, isn't it? We can do this with Instagram, Judging how much better someone's life is compared to ours by what they post. Or on the other side, judging how good our life is by how many likes we're getting or views we're getting. Finding pride in our own reputation. But friends, this kind of comparison is a trap. This passage illustrates for us just how destructive this comparison trap can be. Friends, God shows us a better way And it begins by turning away from contending with others to wrestling with God in our circumstances. Why do I say that? Well, you might have noticed that there's only one time in this entire passage that Jacob says anything. And it's all the way back in verse 2. Jacob says to Rachel, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of your womb? Now, although Jacob's response here is far from gracious, which we will address in more detail later, it does contain some truth. Because ultimately, it's God who has allowed Rachel to remain barren. But what's notable here is what Jacob doesn't do. Because in Genesis 25, we saw that Jacob's own birth story was after years of his mother, Rebekah being barren, just like Rachel. How did Jacob's father, Isaac, respond to his wife's barrenness. Genesis 25, 21 tells us, And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Jacob's own father shows us a very different response to a very similar circumstance. He prayed for his wife. He made his wife's burdens known to God. You see, Rachel's problem here is not with Jacob. In fact, it's not even with Leah. Her problem is with God. And he's the one that she needs to be wrestling with. And doing so would have freed her from the poisonous trap of envy. Because she would have been laying it at the feet of the only one who can do anything about her situation. When we pray our burdens to the Lord, we are, in a sense, wrestling with God over our circumstances. All we need to do is look at the Psalms and see that God is able and willing to hear our burdens and even to hear our complaints. And the Psalms show us how this path can lead us to trust in him in the midst of our circumstances. Friends, let Rachel's actions here be a clear warning to us of the dangers of sinful comparison. Let us contend with God for what we desire and not compete with others around us. Let's be encouraged by Alan P. Ross on this point where he says, Whatever our lot in life, whether we are hated or ignored, oppressed or challenged, troubled or anxious, our attitude should not be one of jealousy, nor our efforts those of bitter rivalry. Rather, we must cultivate a wholehearted trust in God waiting patiently for his blessing on us. Turning to the next section, we continue to see that Rachel and Leah are in competition with one another, and we're warned again to detox from natural remedies. Let's look at verse 14 and 15 together. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. For some of us here, these verses contain the most pressing question of this whole passage. What is the deal with the mandrakes? I mean, some of you might be, reading the word mandrakes here and thinking of the harry potter books when there are these plants called mandrakes that are these like ugly baby looking things that when you pull them out of the ground they cry at you that's not what this passage is talking about actually there's a perennial mediterranean plant called the mandrake that has a bluish or purplish flower and it bears yellowish plum-sized fruit in the summer and in ancient times these mandrakes were thought to be an aphrodisiac, and thought to help with fertility. So, it would appear that Rachel wants the mandrakes because she hopes it will help her to get pregnant. But Leah is not willing to help Rachel here, so it's going to take Rachel giving something up too. So, Rachel proposes that Leah can sleep with Jacob in exchange for the mandrakes. And the very fact that Rachel offers this implies that in some way, Rachel has control over which wife Jacob sleeps with at any given night. So, Rachel gets her mandrakes and Leah gets a night with Jacob. But Rachel's plan doesn't work. Leah ends up pregnant and goes on to have three more children. But Rachel remains barren. Her medicinal solution here is a total failure. Now, this section clearly indicates that it's God that gives Leah more children. Verse 17 says, And God listened to Leah, and she conceived. This seems to imply that Leah was speaking to God, she was praying to him about her situation. But there's no indication here of Rachel praying. And so we have a contrast. Because although Rachel seems to be striving with everything in her own strength to have a child, she does not seem to be seeking God for this. Now, I want to make two things very clear for us here. First, we need to clarify that trusting in God does not mean we avoid natural solutions or that we don't do what we can in our power to improve a situation. You should not come away from this thinking that there's anything wrong with natural remedies or medications in and of themselves. But rather, we need to recognize that trusting in God means that we put our hope in him, even as we seek physical solutions. This is what we see in Psalm 20, verse 7, where it says this. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. At the time this was written, Israel had an army. But the point here is that we don't place our hope in these means, but rather we put our hope in the Lord. The second thing we need to clarify is that we need to be careful that we don't misinterpret the way that God works through prayer. There are some who would look at this passage and say, Rachel sought medication and Leah prayed. And God answered Leah because she prayed. See? All you need to do is pray. The reason you don't have what you desire is that you're trying too hard on your own and you're not praying enough. I must say that I have talked to more than a few Christians that have been given advice like this in the midst of trial. I have had more than a few friends that have struggled with infertility and have been hurt by Christians who, though well-intentioned, essentially gave them advice that reflected this spirit. If you weren't worrying so much, you'd get pregnant. You're not healed because you don't have enough faith. Friends, this is a misapplication of God's word. And it's a misunderstanding of the purpose of prayer. Because underneath of this is the idea that God will give us everything we want if we just pray the right way. It reduces God to some sort of transactional genie. What's more, it ignores the truth that very often God chooses not to answer our prayers in the way we expect. Or in the timing that we're hoping for. That often we don't know what his purposes are. So we're left to trust him. And that he does have a greater purpose in store for us. So the idea here is about what's going on in Rachel's heart. She seems to be looking to natural solutions rather than seeking God and waiting on him. It's the same attitude that led her to give her maidservant to Jacob as his concubine. Friends, when you face trials and suffering, what do you set your hope in? In the trial passing? In the suffering being removed? In finding practical means to fix the problem? Let us pray at times for all of these things. But let us set our trust firmly in God even as we do. Consider the exhortation of J.I. Packer on this point. Trust is not a passive state of mind. It is a vigorous act of the soul by which we lay hold on the promises of God and cling to them despite the adversity that at times seeks to overwhelm us. So, at this point, we've seen through Rachel and Leah just how misguided and destructive our own attempts can be at seeking significance apart from God. And what we're going to see next is why it's worth setting our trust in God himself. And just how freeing it is to find significance in him. So let's look at the last point. Devote yourself to the God who cares. Rachel at this point has tried everything and nothing has worked. She's at the end of what she can do. But God intervenes. And he does what she can't do by opening her womb and giving her a child. Look at the compassion of God expressed in how this happens. Verse 22 says this Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. It says first that God remembered Rachel. This phrase is loaded with meaning, especially in Genesis and Exodus. The ESV study Bible points out that when God remembers someone, it indicates that he is about to take action on their behalf. And this, seems, this phrase seems to often be used particularly in relationship with God's own covenant promises. The cornerstone of this idea can be seen in Exodus 2, when the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, then it says, And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God remembers his covenant promises, and he acts to bring about deliverance for the Israelites. And we see here in this passage, God remembering his covenant and acting to bring about deliverance for Rachel because of them. But what covenant promises is God remembering here? It's his covenant promises that he has made to Jacob. He has told Jacob in continuation with his father Isaac and his father Abraham, it is through, I will make your offspring more than the sand of the sea. He has said to them, I will be with you. And through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. As I was thinking about this section this morning, what struck me was to realize that God remembers Rachel in her connection to God's covenant promises made through Jacob. It is through God's promises, that God remembers Rachel and God acts on her behalf. She is tied into the covenant and to the covenant promises. And we see here that God not only remembers Rachel, but it says that God listened to Rachel. We saw from the last section with Leah that when it says Leah that God listened to Leah, it implied that she was praying. And so we see here that it seems that Rachel has finally started talking To God and taking her burden to him in prayer. And like Leah, God listens to her and gives her a child. And when this happens, she praises God. By saying, God has taken away my reproach. Think about the progression here. God remembered Rachel when she was rejected. God listened to her cries. God acted on her behalf. Friends, there is a pattern of how God works that we see in this passage. Did you notice that this passage is bookended by God opening a womb? In the beginning, God saw that Leah was unloved and opened her womb. And at the end, God remembered, rejected Rachel and opened her womb. In both cases, we see God mercifully acting on behalf of needy people. When I think about this, I can't help but see a contrast between the Lord and Jacob in this passage. Friends, which character in the story exemplifies a godly husband for us? Certainly not Jacob. Jacob loves one of his wives and rejects the other. God sees Leah and remembers Rachel. He shows compassion and love for them both. Jacob is completely passive in this passage. He goes along with whatever scheme his wives propose. But God is proactive. He sees and he acts. Jacob gets angry with Rachel and rebukes her when she expresses to him her grief. God listens to her cries. He ultimately acts on her behalf. No friends, Jacob is not the husband we look to here. But God is and God... Mercifully cares for the well being of Leah and Rachel. In fact, God is the only character in the story that shows compassion and kindness. But let's take that even further. Does any person in this story seem worthy of the kindness that God shows to them? Ask yourself this Would you want Leah or Rachel as a sister? Would you want Jacob as a husband? No every single person in the story is completely unworthy of the kindness they've received from God so why does God do this because friends this is the character of God that we see again and again and again in the scriptures God does this because this is who God is consider these words from the psalms with me the lord is merciful and gracious Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide. Nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins. Nor repay us according to our iniquities. Friends, we need to constantly be reminded that God's grace and mercy is in no way... Based on our own worthiness or our own performance, but rather God's grace and mercy towards us is the result of Him being who He is, the God who loves to show grace and mercy to undeserving people. And this sums up for us perfectly the good news of Christianity Jesus Christ came to bring grace and mercy to needy sinners. Look at how Paul puts it in Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're not sure of what you believe. Maybe you're in the midst of a difficult situation and God feels far away. Maybe you're coming this, in this morning and you're feeling guilt for things that you've done and you feel like you're too far gone to ever experience the love of God. My hope and prayer for you this morning is that you would understand that to be a follower of Jesus is not about what you have to do to get God's blessing or favor, but rather to be a follower of Jesus Is about receiving what God has already done for you. He is a God who is merciful to the rejected, the unloved, the outcast, and the unworthy. And for all of you, I want you to know that I am very aware that there are many burdens represented in this room. There are many who are here who are hurting. Many who are dealing with deep disappointment. Many dealing with unmet desires. Some with immense regret. And one of the greatest burdens for this sermon has been that you walk away not feeling like I've addressed your suffering in a way that is trite or uncaring or impersonal. But my hope and my prayer for you is that we would see together that God not only cares deeply and compassionately, But that if you are in Christ, that he remembers you. And if you are in Christ, you can be sure that he will make good on his promises to you in Christ. Because this is who God is. He is a God full of mercy and grace who is poised to pour compassionate kindness on all who set their hope in him. Friends, this is a beautiful picture of our God. He is the one who sees us in our suffering, who listens to our cries, who remembers his promises to us, and who in all things acts in loving kindness to those who put their hope in him. Truly, this is a God worthy of our trust and devotion.